You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Peter Erickson. Good afternoon and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Peter, we're going to talk all about your, your rich history in, in Canada and, and Sweden and, and Great Britain, but perhaps something easy to get us going. Where are you in the world and what have you been doing so far today? Uh, well, I am in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and I work for an Australian guy, uh, Matt Favier, who is the CEO for the... Um, Saudi Olympic Training Center that started in December. And I'm in charge of uh, performance and strategy. So we work with uh, 20 different sports and around 197 athletes at the time. And, and it will rise to become around 350 probably by the end of this year. And what we try to do here is to raise the standard of high performance with this training center and the funding that we allocate to the sports. So that has been a real different but very positive challenge. And, you know, it's the last thing I do in my career. So this has been a great finish uh, to do something like this. It's a fantastic challenge. Well, if this is the finish, can we go back to the start? Because I know... <laughs> You had two influential coaches very early in your career, Gusti Lorel and Hermann Butz, if I've pronounced yeah. that correctly. And then over your 50 years that you traveled the world, I'm sure that you've met many other great coaches on that journey and probably some coaches that aren't so great. But mm-hmm. Peter, from this perspective, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Well, I think great coaches listen a lot to other coaches uh, to learn. And I think great coaches are self-learners. Like you're always hungry to get an understanding on why is it that certain training have a certain impact or how do I do the periodization or how do I get a better peak for an athlete, you know, when it doesn't work. 
So what I did in the early stages of my coaching career after being an athlete was that I, I tried to find uh, 10 best athletes in the area I was in and their coach. And then I go and ask the athletes, who's your coach? And point me to a person and I go, hey, hey, I'm Peter. I wonder if I can ask you a couple of questions. And then I started to drag that out as long as I could by asking them about how do you do this? What do you think about the planning? How does your periodization look like? What do you focus on during a race? And I went on and on until they got tired and left me, right? But that's the way I, I learned. And Gusti Laurel is an interesting uh, thing. And I, I don't even think Gusti knew what he gave me. But uh, in 1980, I was... Uh, apprentice coach going to Moscow and I, I came in like because somebody else couldn't go and Gusti at that time was probably in his 60s and I just came off my career as an athlete and I know he was into coaching education so I said to him Gusti can I run with you every morning and he goes no no you're running too fast I said no no I run your speed if I can ask a question and he goes yeah sure no problem so every morning for 30 minutes for three weeks I got a lesson in something that had to do with training. So I can ask him, hey, Gusti, what about sprint training? And he was talk he will talk about the same way every day, how it was, how it is, and how he sees it change by time. So after the run, when he had been doing his 30-minute speech with me, I went back and I wrote everything down. I still have the notes. And then uh, next day I go, um, what about interval training? And, same thing, how it was, how it is, and how it's going to turn out to be. And that way I learned a fantastic amount by a man that has so much knowledge. And the same thing with Gusti Laurel, because um, through a girlfriend at the time, I met him and he was the head coach for the Swedish team in athletics. And um, I asked him to help me with my summer training because we had so poor coaching in general in Sweden. It was just all athletes that was retired and they gave them the job. And he uh, looked at all my training. He said, okay, took out a piece of paper, drew a line in the middle, and then he said, uh, tell me about your training. I told him about the training. And then uh, when I was done, he said, you see everything under the line here, which was probably 90% of what I said, that's a waste of time. And the 20% or 10% above is you did right. So now let's try to do the right things for you. And he created the first time I saw a yearly training plan, talked to me about periodization and followed me the whole time. So that was the second guy that really kicked it off for me. And that's the way I continue try to do the whole time by talking to people. But I also learned, a tremendous amount from my athletes, how they give, they gave me feedback or um, I think I can do more of this or uh, I think that uh, this doesn't work very well and I need longer rest or whatever it was. So I learned a lot from the athletes and that was one of the reasons I started with double periodization, for example, in training for my guys. And it was just listening to the athletes, what I can do with the training. Peter, track and field, is a very decentralized sport with athletes working with their own coach, coaches and support teams, you know, all over the country. So in this context, what's the role of a head coach? The role of a head coach is to make sure that the athlete and their coach has whatever they need in order to improve their performance. 
So you're basically monitoring that. So you sit down with each one of the top athletes. That's what I did both in Great Britain and in Canada and go through what the needs are and look at, well, can you get help from somebody else? Do you need help? Is it too little of support services? How can I support you? Because having people in the same place, if it's not rowing or swimming, doesn't make sense in athletics. So you've got to support them in their home in, in their home environment. And, you know, the athlete choose their coach. And they also should be responsible for the outcome. So it's trying to help them and their coach. That's why I think is the key to athletics and specifically. Well, you just mentioned Great Britain and Canada. We're going to get there. But I want to talk about, I want to talk about what Gusti said to you about running too fast because speed is a theme that dominates your early life as an athlete. You grow up in, uh, you grew up in Sodomarm in Sweden. You went on yep. to be a speed skater and eventually you went to the world championships, but speed has stayed with you. And what I'm intrigued to ask you about is, what have you learned about decision-making under pressure right. situations when people are performing at high speed? Right. I mean, you gotta you gotta know your game right first. You gotta know what you're talking about and what you want to do, and you gotta be synced up with the athletes in this case, uh, in order to create plans for them, both on a yearly basis, on a race type of tactics as you're going along, and if it is uh, decisions that you know you you can only uh, train the tactics by only have tactics all along, have a plan. Do the track tactics, plan the tactics, implement the tactics, because you learn from every session on different types of approaches. And then when you come to the big game where you're really in the pressure situation, I'm just a bystander uh, being a cheerleader going, oh, it looks great. And uh, the athletes is the one that have had learned them by that time to make those kind of decisions because as a coach, I see you as a educator uh, and also you can be more of a, a consultant and advisor in the end of the career of an athlete if they coach them enough amount of years right and if you lead the whole team when it comes to decision making you got to be prepared understand the rules understand the game and make quick decision don't drag decisions out make the decision it could be good or bad but you made a decision so go for it in 1982, you started coaching para-Olympic athletes. Yep. Now, 40 years later, you are the most successful para-Olympic track and field coach in history. Now, I'm intrigued because I am sure many of your para-Olympic athletes have had to overcome significant barriers to make the track. And I'm wondering what your athletes have taught you about perseverance through this journey. Well, you have to look at it in why I came there in the first place. And the reason I started with coaching was to help others not have the same bad experience that I had as a speed skater. I mean, I, I think I wasted 10 years of my life on poor program training, whatever it was that we did. And, uh, you know, I was there for the long run for my athletes all the time. And I always told them that I'm here for you until your career is over. And I didn't think they were going to last 15 and 18 years, <laughs> whatever it was. So uh, I had to hang in there. But, you know, it's a continuous learning process. So 
I don't regret that. And I remember in 2004 when Chantal Petitclerc, for example, won the first time in ever in history five gold medals. And I thought, great, now I can go home, retire from this. I don't have to worry about this anymore. And then three days later, I get a little card from her saying, thanks, coach, let's do it again. <laughs> so I go, okay, well, another four years. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a fun run, right? So to me, it never felt like I was doing some hardship in any way. I was, I was, I was never paid really until around 2005 when I worked for the U.S. Paralympics. Uh, but I was never paid. I did this, uh, and I had talented athletes, and most of my athletes stayed 15 or 20 years. And you, and you see the result of the great athletes that I coach, uh, and I give them the credit for the results. But you have to remember, I had an equal amount of athletes that was never successful. And the reason for that, I think, is all about the relationship you're building with the athletes. Uh, the relationship is the base uh, for success and writing a training program to me, that's not particularly hard. Describe to me what a successful relationship looks like in terms of high performance. Well, there's many factors in that. I think that uh, you you trust each other, number one, and they understand why they're doing certain amount of training. I always tell my athletes to uh, ask me if why are you doing a certain training session and I have to explain what good is doing for them and why they're doing it. And if I can't that do that, I told them don't do the training session because then it's just not valuable. So you're building a trust that way and, and you also can communicate with each other. And, you know, it's easy and specific in athletics. Athletes from one coach to another. It's always a new guru of some sort in the sport. And that doesn't solve the problem for them. It's consistency, the focus, and the relationship that makes the difference to me. Peter, you've been a fierce advocate for equality when it comes to the Paralympics. In fact, you, you integrated the Great Britain Olympics and Paralympic teams heading into the 2012 Olympics. But I wanted to flip that around a bit and ask you, what would your challenge be to other leaders in sport, in community, in corporate, who are listening? What would your advice be to them on changing their own biases and preconceived ideas about what people with physical impairments are possible of doing? I I never looked at my athletes as having a physical impairment. Uh, I looked at them as athletes. So, you know, if you're training a runner or two runners, they don't run the same. And if you have a runner that has cerebral palsy, for example, he doesn't run the same as the next one who has cerebral palsy. So you have to look at what is the commitment to become an elite athlete, to take away the stigma of disability, um, and just look at them as athletes. I mean, I'm not a caretaker uh, and I just a coach that want to help athletes perform the best according to their uh, expectation of what the best means. So I, I don't, I never advocated for being, uh, doing integration. I just demanded it, that it, it shouldn't be, two separate departments, the Paralympic and the Olympic. And uh, I have never 
had resistance, in particular in uh, the UK, of Olympic coaches that is not willing to take on Paralympic athletes. And I only one time in all the time I've been around that he said, no, I don't want to do it. And the reason that person said no was because they were retiring the next year. So they didn't want to take on any new athletes. But at my team in uh, in um, in London in 2012, for example, I had Sean Pickering, a well-known throwing coach from the Olympic side. I had Lloyd Cowan being on my team, uh, uh, Uhuru's coach in 400-meter Olympic gold medals. So we always had Olympic coaches on the team. And I think we need to take away the stigma of Paralympic coach versus Olympic coach. You're a coach, and that's it. And the athlete is an athlete, disability or not, it doesn't matter. In 2013, you switch and you become the head coach of the Canadian Paralympic and Olympic programs. And you go on to become the most medal-winning head coach of Canadian athletics in modern history, which is a wonderful achievement, Peter. But... What were some of the early decisions you made when you got to Canada that drove this unprecedented result? Well, so between 1996 and 2013, basically, Canada has had between zero and one medals in every major event, and they want to make a change. <clears throat> and as you know, they're making a change is something that everybody agree on until they hit them, right? And um, so when I came along, Canada had two, no, sorry, Canada has seven training centers. So I shut down five of them. And that way I saved one and a half million dollars, which I gave directly to the athletes and their coach in order to enhance the performance in the location they were at. The other two training centers becomes more of the hub concept. You can come and go. You can get services there. You don't have to be there. You can come there for camps, whatever it is with your coach. So that was the major change because now suddenly we directed a lot of money and we didn't in increase the administration of bureaucracy. We actually cut down more on the bureaucracy and uh, all the money we went to, the athletes and the coach. I think that was the key to success. I had some good coaches around me. We had uh, we set up a total different support services with practitioners that was with the teams and across the country, and that also made a huge impact. So I think that was the key to the the, the whole success of that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In fact, Peter, one of your athletes, Jeff Adams, said about you, quote, one of the things he's most talented at 
is being able to modify his coaching style to individual athletes. Now, with so many athletes to coach, so many people in your program, how are you able to provide this type of individual support? I, I don't know if I have a real good answer for that. It's nice of you have to say that. Like it's more like the relationship you have in an athlete so you understand where the trigger points are. Uh, Jeff uh, is very outspoken and, and argumentative, and he's a really good guy, uh, which is very different from what I have with some of the athletes. I was very quiet. They needed time to think. Uh, about something that was making a decision. And, and you have to just look at what kind of profile or how they react to certain things. And and sometimes you believe that uh, you have an agreement and you really don't realize until much later that uh, you don't. And um, I think you learn from being around them and, and constantly talking to them and and being there for them, right? And because I'm there for them, I'm not there for me. I, me doesn't really matter in this whole thing, right? I, I I want them to achieve their goals. My goal is to make sure they achieve their goals, right? So I think it's just take time and understand how each person reacts to different things. How do you maintain that type of energy, though? You've got four daughters, I understand, and you're taking this selfless approach to coaching people. How are you sustaining yourself? How are you keeping your own energy up so that you can be a giver when it comes to coaching? I was just born with a lot of energy, and that's why I got into sport to keep out of trouble, I guess. And uh, it's just, uh, it's just to me, it's not like even here now, right? It's not a job. This is what I do. This is what I love to do. And, and I see when I see an athlete succeed, in reaching the goals they have set, and I've been there to help them. That's the biggest kicker for me. I don't count medals or world records or whatever it is. I I'm, I'm just want them to reach their goal. So to me, it just comes naturally. This is fun. I enjoy it. It's going to end one of these days, and then hopefully my golf game gets better. <laughs> I want to talk about things ending, if that's okay, because it it is an interesting part of your story, and there's a it's a, a longish question, but I'd like to – I think it gives context to the to the, um, the background, gives context to the question I'd like to ask. So you're coaching Great Bitten and you have great success and they put it down to, quote, your inclusive and less abrasive style than your predecessor, which I think is, a, is a, as anyone can, listening to this will tell, you're definitely not an abrasive character. But then later, after this great run with Canada, Rob Guy, who was the chief executive of Athletics Canada, in announcing the decision to part ways with you, said, quote, however... Through the report, it was felt that a change in leadership style was needed in the high-performance area. So you've got these two very different quotes coming through. But, Peter, based on the experience you've had, what advice would you have now for other leaders when it comes to potentially adjusting their style, their leadership approach, to the situation they find themselves in? Well, it's different kind of stakeholders and different type of situation you have. And you have to look at the fact that what is it that I try to achieve and what, 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 uh, not power, but what can I do to influence anything, right? So it's more of a listening, uh, scenario in one sense. But if you're giving the authority to do things, then do it. Don't wait for 
time to come so you can do it in the right time. Because sometimes there is no right time to make changes, right? It's like stop smoking. It's not, I can't stop smoking on a Friday because, you know, I have a beer on Friday and Monday. I can't stop smoking either because I go to work, right? So the same thing with kind of decision, take it on uh, as soon as you can, really, and and, and try to uh, make the best out of the situation. But it's also depending what's around you, right? Is it a good CEO? Is it a bad CEO? Do you have the board behind you? Like in the UK, I have a fantastic uh experience with both the chairman of the board and the CEO. They were very supportive. Uh, they were asking hard questions, but they always let me do my job and let me be responsible in, in good and in bad. But how many times do you really meet need, see that in uh, in sport, right? Because it's a lot of power play in sport. And I think we waste too much time on uh, politics and sport in general, right? One of the stories I read, Peter, in preparation for today, which I think speaks speaks a lot to your approach as a coach, was the mm. instances in Canada when some athletes were very vocal in their criticism of your style. But what was fascinating was you kept your feedback private and you didn't engage with people through the media. And I wanted to ask you, was this an important moment for you when it came to building the team culture? Well, as you know now, right, we're overwhelmed by social media. And, and if people in, in a group of athletes, wasn't really a group of athletes, it was a group of two or three. Um, if you start to respond in media to all of this, you're, you're a loser right off the bat. So th- there is not really anything to respond to. And you, and you try to build a team culture within the, the national team in this sense, or if it is in business or if it is in a training center, you want it to be a culture where everybody's into the vision and, and the mission of what you try to achieve. Going out in media and try to have social media in particular, it's just going to be, end up being a mudslinging contest that serves no purpose, right? And it's the first one on social media who makes a claim about anybody or anything you can never, you can never get it right. So after uh, the when the my con- contract was cancelled with Athletics Canada, I never responded to media because it had no bearing on anything. I'm not going to get my job back. I'm not about to defend myself for you know slanderous stuff that that goes out on social media. I mean, I have a family. I'm a person. Like that's that's what you forget many times when when you have somebody being a performance director or a coach that there's a person behind this. I didn't take this job to have a power of anything. I, I took this job because I know I could do the job and make a difference. But what they forget is always like when you work for an association, there's a person behind this. I have four daughters, and when people start to write on my daughter's Facebook. It's kind of a critical situation of trying to explain for them why I was uh, doing this job in the first place. So trying to defend yourself in media, it's, it's meaningless. It's just, they're just looking after sensation, right? The same as the panorama 
program in the UK, or I think they have it in Australia too. They don't listen to any kind of rational evidence of anything. They just wanted to make somebody look bad or make a point. So that's why I stayed away from it. It's like, I have a life. I'm a person. And, and, and look at it in, in many ways when performance director and head coaches get fired or they they get uh, canceled contracts, whatever it is. They never think about that. Oh, great. This guy got now fired. He was such a bad guy and bad coach. I mean, it's a person. Don't forget that. And, and it affects more people than just trying to trample somebody down in the mud. I mean, we have families, we have lives, and hopefully we have a life continuous. No, it's a great answer, Peter. And I think you handled it with such dignity and many of your athletes reference it in articles and blogs about the way that you that you dealt with it and the yeah. example you set for them. And I think that's such a powerful example for you to leave. But Peter, you've helped you've helped many of your athletes actually transition into coaching. Um, Mm. And I'm wondering, what are the critical traits athletes need to develop to be a good coach? Well, I think I said some of it before, like continual learning. Don't think that you know it because you, you never know everything. And the more you know, the less you know. So continue learn. Learn from others. Listen to others. Listen to the athletes analyze everything you're doing, evaluate what you're doing, plan what you're doing, be ready for the next step. Always be ready with a new plan. So that's what I think they need to look for to be successful as a coach uh, going forward. You talked about your four daughters a minute ago, and I believe all of them have names that begin with J. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know whether they've come to you and asked for advice if they're like my daughters or not. But uh, if they did come and ask you for advice on being an effective leader, what would you tell them? Learn. Learn. Always continue learning. Learn from others. Listen to people. You don't have to do everything everybody say that is wise and, and have great advices, but you learn something every time. It's like me listening to Frank Dick's speech. I heard it several times, and every time I learn something new. And... It's great to have guys like Frank that really knows what he's talking about and be able to listen to him. And there's many others too. There is a lot of, as I said before, these coaches that think they're superstar coaches and they know everything. The only thing they do is to change the world words in science. They haven't uh, changed anything and most of them doesn't even uh, uh produce performance, but I I think you can learn from everybody. So it's an ongoing learning process that I don't think stops as long as you're coaching. Peter, you've been very generous with your time. So maybe just one final question, if I could. Under your leadership as a performance director or a head coach in either role, athletes have won a rather staggering uh, more, well, under your leadership, athletes have won over 240 medals at major international competitions, which is, it's a staggering amount. But beyond the medals and the world records, what is it you hope is the legacy that you've left so far as a coach? I actually got that question a lot, many times. And actually, I never think about it. Because uh, it's not why I came to 
about coaching in the first place. Like I came into it just to help the athletes, other athletes achieve not such a bad experience as I have. And, and legacy to me, if they want to remember me, they can say, well, he was one of the team members of the 2012 Paralympic Games, or he was the one of the team members for the 2016 Olympic team with the athletics in Canada. And if they remember that, that that's all. That I don't, I don't, I don't, I never think about legacy. Can I challenge you on that? Sure. I think in your story, and you've mentioned it a few times in your answers, there's, there's something around selflessness that is just so central to who you are. And I think it's very central to your coaching approach. You are there for them. You are willing to give more energy perhaps than they are willing to give. And I think, I think this example, it's actually quite rare if you think about it from a society point of view. Maybe it's not so rare in elite coaching. But from a society and a community point of view, Peter, I'm not sure there's many people that exhibit that kind of selflessness. Right. Right. Well, maybe not. <laughs> Sorry to get all I deep never thought about it. <laughs> oh, No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think about that either, right? So I just, I just try to, uh, whatever I do, it is now, when you have a lot of experience and, and with the, what we're building up here, I'm the oldest guy to have on, on staff. And, you know, I'm not going to be here forever uh, working. I work as long as I feel like I'm, I'm contributing. But I'm just here to help and advise based on the experience, experience that I have. And I don't have any, I don't have any vision of becoming anything else that I'm doing and it was the same with coaching <clears throat> I had my career as an athlete I, I never thought about uh, uh, having successful athletes I when I started coaching I really started with speed skaters junior group and it was a really it was really fun and then when I went to uh, university I met this guy in a wheelchair and he was a track athlete and he said uh we start to talk about training. I love talking about training. And he and he said, can you help me? I said, I don't know nothing about what you guys do. And he said, well, come and watch on Saturday. Uh, we're racing them. And I did. And I go, that's really cool. <laughs> uh, maybe I can help the guy. But then I had my experience with Herman and, and Gusty. So I, I had some information that way about training in general, which comes from uh, uh, spinal cord injuries. So at the time, um, I worked as a fireman in, uh, for 11 years when I was uh, an athlete, and then I uh, started university, but I still worked, uh, um, you know, one night a week and one week in a month or something like that. And one night I got this idea on, well, we don't know anything about physiology and training really for spinal cord injuries, and I wonder how that worked, and I started to you know, be studying physiology at the university and asked to write all of these things down I needed to know. I went to my professor at the university the next day and I said, uh, hey, uh, his name was P.O. Ostrand, and he was the guru on exercise physiology, and it was the one that wrote the first book about exercise physiology. And I said, P.O., can we do something with this? I have a lot of questions. And he goes, 
yeah, that's a great research project. Uh, you want to do it? I go, sure. Uh, when can I start? <laughs> and he goes, oh, you got to find the money first. So I uh, went to insurance company in Sweden who had a department for disability you know, research or whatever it was. And I know the guy who worked there, and I said, can I put in a proposal on a, a research? And he goes, sure. And I um, got 50,000 Swedish crowns from that time. And I ended up doing it, uh, the research, for eight years. <laughs> but it was all based on what is the impact of training for physiology-wise on spinal cord injuries. And that also helped with my uh, with my coaching because I didn't do any research just to publish a paper. <laughs> Another stupid story. <laughs> it's not a stupid story at all. From Sweden all the way to Riyadh. What a yeah. great story. So many surprises, so many wonderful athletes, so many people that you've helped along the way. So, Peter Erickson, thank you for spending a bit of time tonight. It's been fascinating learning a little bit more about your story, and I wish you all the best with your latest project in Riyadh. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks. It was a pleasure being here.